Pray one more time together. Father, thank you so much for the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Well, we're grateful that solely on the basis of the blood of Jesus, we have access, Lord, and boldness even to enter into the throne room of grace, even as we'll see. Father, we thank you that on the merits of the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of your Son, Jesus, Not because of our demerit, Lord, but because of His infinite merit can we stand before You spotless, clean. We thank You, Lord, that our Savior not only condescended, that He came down, He lived in our place, He died in our stead, and He cleanses us with His blood. But Lord, His life is here to abide in us and through us. We pray, O God, today that we would have more of Him, more of Jesus, more of His life, more of His mind, more of His heart in our own lives that are so desperately in need of His grace. Thank You, Father, for Your Son. Bless this Word now to our hearing, Lord. May Your Word have a factual, powerful, practical, and experiential effect upon our lives and hearts. All for Your glory. In Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the final uh, message that we have been looking at in terms of what well, I've entitled Biblical Leadership in the Church. And today we come to a simple but very profound text of Scripture. And with it comes the last principle of biblical leadership that I wanted to highlight, which was praying for the church. Praying for the church. For the church. And that's what the leader does. He does that in Verses 1 through 5, he strengthens the church. Verses 6 through 10, he evaluates the church. And verses 11 through 13, now he prays for the church. In one sense, we can say that this last characteristic or this last aspect of biblical leadership is not just critical for the pastor to do, but it's also vitally important for the church. Prayer could easily be called the most essential component in shepherding the flock of God. I want to focus a little bit on prayer for a moment. Through prayer, selfishly, let me state, that the pastor extends his reach of ministry. The pastor prays for the flock, and the pastor in doing that shepherds the flock. It's almost as if the prayer becomes the shepherd's crook by where he can reach the flock without even being with the flock. Prayer enables the pastor to spiritually connect with his people. And that's really the most important connection of all, the spiritual connection. Through prayer, the pastor can feel the burdens of his people, the sins of his people, the challenges of his people, and the calling that he bears to teach and to preach and to pastor the flock of God for their own spiritual maturity. Prayer reminds the pastor that he is not alone in the work of establishing the church because that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's seeking to establish or to complete the maturity of the church. Prayer reminds the pastor that he doesn't do this work alone. C.H. Spurgeon was asked once, how do you get so much accomplished in the ministry? You know, Spurgeon was a speed reader. He probably read about five books a week. And he said, he reminded somebody that asked him, how are you so productive in the ministry? He says, you forget that there are two of us. 
In other words, in prayer, the pastor is reminded that he doesn't lead the church by himself. In fact, in prayers where the pastor should really seek for strength, for unction to preach, of course, but also for empathy for his people, insights into his studies, wisdom for his studies, self-examination of his own heart, endurance of his own course. And all of that is for the good of the church that is entrusted to him. That's what I mean by selfishly because I'm preaching to myself at this moment. But it's it's important for you to know this. In prayer is where the pastor awakens his own affections, repents of his own sin, renews his communion with God, and alleviates all of his anxieties and his fears. Prayer is where the shepherd is shepherded himself. It is, as it were, that the one who is tasked with fathering everyone else in prayer is where he receives the love of the Father for himself. It is where he who spends his life saving others seeks the Savior himself. It is where he who spends his life comforting others is where he finds the comfort of the Spirit of God. He who stirs others to fellowship is surrounded by the fellowship of the triune God. It is in prayer where the grace he directs others to flows to him through the throne of grace. Prayer is the place where uh, where the leaders who f- feel misunderstood or feel unwelcomed or feel unliked or unloved. And there are many pastors that are in that place. I'm not one of those. Thankfully, thank you. I feel loved. I feel welcomed. I feel liked. But many pastors don't. Charles Simeon was one of those pastors. His own church resented him, resisted him, and often opposed him for no good reason. And he endured that opposition. And in prayer is where, where else would Simeon find refuge for God where he would be not only fully accepted by God, fully known by God, but befriended by God. It was in prayer. If anything, Paul's prayer here in Thessalonians, it reminds us, it shows us how critical prayer was for the Apostle Paul as a pastor, as an apostle, of course, but as a leader in the church. And in this prayer, what we're going to find, verses 11 through 13, is that prayer was essential for the, the unity of the church, it was effectual for the love of the church, and it was critical for the holiness of the church. And so what we're going to do today, as we think about Paul in prayer for the church, is we're going to look at this as Paul's prayer list. Real simple. This is Paul's itemized prayer list for the church. And first on the list is prayer for greater unity. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. In other words, the Apostle Paul wanted to be joined to the church. He wanted to minister to the church. He wanted to preach to the church, teach the church. Of course, we see this at the very end where he, he talked about earlier at verse 10, he says at the end of verse 10, he talks about wanting to see them face to face so that he can complete what is lacking in their faith. And so that desire for unity was bathed in prayer. He prayed that he would have a, a closer, more intimate relationship with the church. And it's an amazing prayer if you think about it. I want, I want to point out a couple of things here about this opening uh, item on the list of prayer for greater unity. Uh, notice, uh, just as an aside, that this is a binatarian prayer. You've heard of Trinitarian? 
This is a binary prayer. This is a prayer that is prayed to the Father and to the Lord Jesus. Did you see that? So in other words, it, even though it's rare in the New Testament, it is nevertheless biblical and right to actually pray to Jesus. I like that. Many of you guys do that whether you know it's right or wrong. <laughs> but it's right. It's good. It's proper. You know, Jesus himself taught us the order of prayer. He does that in John 14, John 15, John 16, where he teaches repeatedly that the manner of prayer should be that we pray to the Father, something like this, praying to the Father on the basis of the life and work of the Son, enabled, empowered, and aided by the Spirit. Prayer is a Trinitarian uh, spiritual exercise. It really is. But what does he pray? He prays that he, he, he trusted God providentially, that God would direct his way back to the church, which was another way of saying the Apostle Paul was quite content in resigning his ministry to God. He was quite content knowing that God is the one that opens doors. God is the one that closes doors. God is the one that creates this, this uh, unity and this fellowship that he was so desperately seeking with the church. It has to be a work of God. And he was happy to lay it at his feet. And the Apostle Paul also here expresses in this a desire for unity, which is really important. This is why. Unity, as you guys know, unity is difficult. Unity is one of those things in the church that can be the most difficult because there are so many variables. There are so many obstacles to our unity if we think about it. All sorts of different reasons to divide, isn't there? Don't get any ideas. But let me give you some anyway. It's easy to divide in the church because, well, there's theological differences to start out. There are people that have different opinions on different texts, different doctrines, and it's hard to unite in that sense. You'll never have perfect unity, ever. Um, also, it's, it could be challenging on practical things like financial stress that a church is going through, turmoil, all sorts of things like that. That's to say nothing, brothers and sisters, of the spiritual warfare that we face every day. There's all sorts of challenges and obstacles to real, lasting, mature, biblical, self-conscious unity. And... Um, that's something that we need to strive for. As a matter of fact, unity is something that, according to the Bible, is something we have to pursue. It doesn't happen automatically, in other words. It's not going to happen automatically. It's not even guaranteed. If anything, what's guaranteed is the challenges to unity. That's what's guaranteed. Unity has to be cultivated. We have to strive after it, and we have to carefully preserve the unity of the church, like Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Essential for that unity, therefore, and that preservation of that unity is prayer. But it doesn't just pray that he himself would have a path, a direction back to the church and reunite with the church. He prays for more than that. Look at now, he turns to the virtue of the church. Item number two on the list is that he doesn't just pray for their unity, his unity with them, and in a sense, unity all around, but he also prays for their love. Like I said, these are real simple points. So you should all be able to republish these points at the end of the sermon. Amen? So point number one, unity. Point number two, love. Love. And we better not underestimate the importance of the virtue of love because of its simplicity. Brothers and sisters, like unity, love is difficult. And look at what he says. He says, he says this, so may God... 
and Jesus do this, may God the Father and Jesus direct our way to you, and, verse 12, may He also, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So in praying now for the church, he prays specifically for the church's increase in the all-important Christian virtue of love. Brothers and sisters, the central virtue of Christianity is love. Love is what will endure to eternity. Of course, we know the classic passage on love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1-8. through 8. The Apostle Paul there goes on to talk about if you have this, if you have that, if you have this, if you have that, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. In other words, Christianity is not Christ-like. You can have all these gifts and talents and abilities and knowledge and wisdom, but if you do not have love, then you do not have that which looks like Jesus the most. And therefore, you have a defective Christianity. This can't happen easily. Now think about it in the context of Thessalonians. Back up for me, with me for a second. Remember how Thessalonians was established. The church at Thessalonica was established. Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul, you know, right after he's released from jail from, in Philippi, he goes to Thessalonica there and he establishes a church. He meets a young man by the name of Jason and his household. Now Jason and his household are persecuted. Why? Because he's identifying openly and publicly with the apostles. Jews get wind of that, they persecute them, they drive the apostles out of town, and Jason and, his, and, and some of the, uh, the people with him go to jail. And in jail, they have to literally bribe their way out of jail. And so think about this admonition to love. We are not told the details that may have transpired after Jason's release, how difficult it would have been to identify with him, how difficult it would have been socially, economically. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, because this is a big commitment that we have to be willing to have ourselves. It's important for us, even though we are not in the same persecuted context, let's say, of Thessalonica or, J- or Jason's household or the, new, the first uh, century church, maybe we are not presently under persecution, but it's the level of commitment. It's the level of sacrifice. That's what love is all about, and you see it here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 32. Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy. There's the love at work. There's the component. There's the expression. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. So that love was not all talk. It was actually something authentic and real. Cannot fake joy in the midst of persecution. But they joyfully accepted the seizure, the plunder of their property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. So amazing. 
In other words, love, first and foremost, in terms of one another, is a commitment to suffer with each other, to bear with one another, even in the most dire situations, in the most dire tribulations. But Paul doesn't stop there. Notice what he says. It's one thing to love each other. If you go back to Thessalonians, he says that his prayers for an increase and overflow of love that spills over to one another, and this is what we talk about in terms of the theology of the one another's of Scripture. But he goes further than that. He says, for all people. Now return back to the context of the Thessalonians. They're reading this. They're just getting done experiencing the tribulations that they went through with Jason, the persecution that happens. And the, you know, it says there in, first, uh, excuse me, in Acts chapter 17, it says that the Jews had stirred up a mob of people to go and persecute that little house church. And now the Apostle Paul is writing back to them and he's saying to them, you need to go back into the society and you need to love all people. Wow. Uh, you know, Paul did, he, he, Paul did this. In other words, Paul was prescribing exactly what he himself had done. Turn, turn with me to Acts really quick. Acts chapter 16. You remember the story here. I made reference to it a moment ago, but this is where... The Apostle Paul and Silas are thrown in a jail, and we know that they are miraculously delivered with a theophany of God. And beginning verse 25, it says, But midnight, uh, Acts 16 25 says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying hymns, uh, were praying and singing hymns and praises to God. That's in prison, guys. That's in prison. And the prisoners were listening to them. <laughs> Evangel- if you're not good at preaching the gospel, maybe just evangelize through singing. It could be effective. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. Wow, what an incredible sign. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped because obviously as a Roman soldier, for you to fall asleep at the wheel, so to speak, and be guilty of allowing the escape, the release of prisoners meant your death anyway. And so what he was saying was, I'm going to go ahead and do it myself before I face the wrath of the Roman government. And so what he's saying is, Paul cried out to him, or excuse me, Paul cried out with a loud voice and saying, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. I mean, this is the guy that had just thrown them into the dungeon. And now here's Paul affectionately loving the guy enough to keep him from, from laying on his sword. He cared enough for this heathen Roman guard. And let me tell you, in the first century, it was well known that Roman soldiers were, I mean, they were, uh, they were, they were uh, not very righteous. They were not very pious individuals. The vast majority of them were quite wicked and evil. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling... Uh, with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, that, I read that down to that portion there to show you the effects of love. When we risk loving the unlovely, when we risk loving the unworthy, when we risk loving our enemies, the potential is that we may one day hear, What must I do to be saved? It's further than that. He goes on to be saved, to go home, to rejoice with his family. He, and apparently his whole household, gets saved, gets baptized, and hosts the Apostle Paul and Silas. 
<laughs> Talk about a turn of events. The turn of events was from the Lord. This is an amazing love, brothers and sisters. And what it reminds us is love is sacrificial. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And the reason why is because when we think of love, when we think of the love that Paul calls us to, we think of the type of love that the Apostle Paul himself had, the type of love he exemplified in his own life. It pales in comparison to the love that was exemplified in the ultimate source of love and standard of love Himself, the Lord Jesus. But I make it personal to us today because you and I, we don't just read about the love of God. We don't just hear about Christ's love. We just don't know about the love of Jesus. It's not just a theoretical concept in our mind, even a good one. Brothers and sisters, Romans chapter 5 tells us we are recipients of this love. Look at Romans 5, 6. I remember preaching this in a, um, preaching this in a, uh, a church once. I preached this text at a church conference, and after the conference, nobody had ever done this to me before. Just this little story, I'm just affectionately connected. But afterwards, the pastor and a couple of the men took me in a back room, and they said, okay, we want to ask you some questions about the sermon. And I thought, oh, okay, this is fun. And they all started breaking out their Greek texts you know, started asking me difficult grammatical questions about the text. I'm like, what kind of church is this? <laughs> anyway, it's, I'm so connected to this text because of that. But Romans 5 really exemplifies exactly what we're talking about. Love displayed through sacrifice. That's what Paul's calling the church to do. Supremely demonstrated and seen through Jesus. Look at what it says here. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. That's happening right now in a sense. Did you hear what's happening with the children over in Thailand? They're stuck in the cave. One former Navy SEAL apparently, or I don't know if he's even a former, I think he was a current Navy SEAL, uh, in attempting to do some of the diving exercises, has died. Uh, He's died trying to save a in a sense, a righteous man. These children didn't do anything wrong. And that's an incredible act of heroism and incredible act of bravery and righteousness. But it says that somebody would dare to die for a righteous person. He says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. It's like the love does not stop there. The love continues perpetually in the life of the believer, flowing to us. Divine love, redemptive love, flowing to us through Jesus Christ. His death, His burial, His resurrection, but His ongoing vitality of the believer. It says, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, and this is the reason I read verse 11, the term reconciliation. Reconciliation is the business that we're in. Reconciliation, the word just literally means bringing two opposing parties together. You see, we were at odds with God. We were enemies of God through wicked works. We were His enemy. And He was our enemy. Even more dreadful, God was our enemy, which is almost unbearable to think about. But in an act of reconciling love, God sent His Son to die for us so that we can be reconciled to God. 
In the same way, brothers and sisters, we are called to be reconcilers. On a practical pastoral level, the Apostle Paul talks about that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says when we are slandered, we try to reconcile. That should be the heart, the spirit behind every Christian. At an evangelistic level, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, that God, in a sense, is pleading through us to the world the message of reconciliation. That's what love does. That's what it does. Love is potent that way. You know, we have a remarkable opportunity as Christians to distance ourselves from the world through our love. It really is. Our love should be what uh, distinguishes us. It, It should be what makes us different from everyone else around us. And we don't have enough of it in our life. Just like Paul, I'm calling us to abound, to increase in this love of brother and neighbor alike. Love being the most essential characteristic of the Christian life, it causes us to engage in very serious, sober, and spiritual self-examination. Brothers and sisters, the reason I say that is because there is nothing more important than love in terms of a litmus test of our lives. John says in 1 John, if you do not love, you are not of God. It is that simple. At some fundamental level, if your heart is bound up in bitterness and envy and strife and anger and hatred, instead of being filled with all the vices of the flesh, our hearts should be overflowing with the virtues of grace. And that is supremely manifested in love. Love is the way forward, brothers and sisters. Love is the path to spiritual maturity. No, 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 no. It's not a cheap, sentimental, cheap grace kind of love. Hey, I love you, man. But, you know, I'm never there for you. No, no, no. It's not even a spoken love so much as it is a love that is lived out through commitment to one another, just like we saw in Hebrews. But love is the way to spiritual maturity. Not a love that is rooted in emotional ecstasy or any of the kind. It is the holy love of Christ rooted in the holy mind of Christ. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 so I can just demonstrate this to you quickly. Philippians chapter 2, we're told of the mind of Christ. Look at verse 5. In other words, this is how you do the exegesis of this passage. You ready? You read verse 5 because there we're given a proposition. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude? Well, that points backwards to verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. It's a parallel passage. He asked the Thessalonians the same thing that he asked of the Philippians because this is what every church should be in pursuit of. And he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit. That empty conceit just literally means don't think higher of yourself than you ought to because really at the end of the day, none of us are very impressive. We need love. That is the dominant virtue that we should be pursuing here. Not self-glory, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. That is the essence of the holy love of Jesus Christ. He considered us more important than Himself when He hung on the cross and refused to come down 
for the sake of his sheep. He loves the sheep and he laid down his life for the sheep. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? Truly amazing. Brothers and sisters, let me point us in the right direction today. The Apostle Paul twice told Timothy, flee all of these vices, toxic lusts, toxic attitudes, sinful behaviors, and positively pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, peace, and above all, love. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Let's not be impressed, therefore, by one another's knowledge. It's very easy to do in a theologically minded church. I had a pastor recently comment on our church, and he said, yeah, you guys are, uh, yeah, you guys are real serious about like theology over there. <laughs> like, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but that's not what should make people Im- be impressed by. That's no certain sign of grace, in order to quote Edwards. Theological knowledge is just more accountability. That's really what it is. So therefore, we cannot be impressed by one another's knowledge, one another's zeal, one another's talents, insights, and dreadful, no matter how dreadful our illuminations and our insights into the text are, what should impact us most about our spiritual maturity is our capacity to love in a truly Christ-like, selfless way. This is the path to Christ. This is the path of Christ. This is the example that He laid down for us. A true love is devoid of self-interest. Our priority will always be the blessedness of the other person. Listen very carefully, because now we're talking about what it is that our minds ought to be when we walk through the doors of this church, when we go home to our homes, when we interact with the fellowship of 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 the saints. It ought to be that our priority is the blessedness, the beatitude of the other. How can we improve their joy? How can we enhance their hope? How can we deepen their peace? How can we enrich their knowledge of God? That should be our number one priority. This will really reveal where you're at. This will reveal whether or not you have a hard heart or whether or not you have a heart of love. It really will. I would go so far as to say nothing will expose the vitality of our walk with God than whether or not we are walking and whether or not we're walking near to God, then through the way that we love one another. It's that powerful. The virtue of love is supernatural. It's a byproduct of regeneration. It's a spiritual, holy sense that you are given upon salvation. And if you do not express it, you do not live in it, you don't cultivate it and grow in it, then we have to wonder, was it ever given to you? Very serious. That's why I said... It calls us to self-examination. That's why Paul prays for this. Now jump back over to 1 Thessalonians and let's see the last item on the list. The last item on the list is that he prays for greater holiness. So unity, love, holiness. Look at what he says. He says that you abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. And then in verse 13, we're given a very important purpose clause. So that... He may establish your hearts without blame. Who's He? Uh, God. That God may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Wow. That's a mouthful, so get ready. Because in this 
last prayer request. In a sense, we are speaking here of eschatology. We're speaking both of the individual eschatology of the believer and the cosmic eschatology of the church. Why do I say cosmic? Because on the one level, we are speaking about our appearing before our God and Savior. On another level, we are speaking about the church's appearing before Christ at His coming. And so he has both in mind, I believe. He has the idea of what we will appear to be before him as individual believers. And at the same time, the impact, the influence, the significance of the coming, the parousia of the Lord. So absolutely important. I want to encourage us today about prayer. We're praying, or we're we're praying, we're preaching on prayer. And one of the things I wanted to point out was a clue about how to be a better person prayerful believer because look at what Paul does in prayer. I hope you don't miss it. It's so obvious. It's right there on the pages of Scripture. And if we just gloss over it, we'll miss the wonder of the way that Paul prayed. Don't you want to know how Paul prayed? Don't you want to know what was his method? You know, Matthew Henry wrote a book entitled The Method of Prayer, where he tried to help uh, 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 people to pray the right way or the best way or good ways to pray. There's a method to prayer, and Paul's method, I want to draw your attention to this, Paul's method of prayer was not just rattling off a list. It wasn't just rattling off a list. If anything, brothers and sisters, it was presenting an argument to God. (laughs) You see that? Yeah, that's right, I said it. You're going to go home and say, the pastor told us that we are to present an argument to God in prayer. That's right. And it should have prepositions, it should have conjunctions, it should have a a purpose clause, it should have verbs and participles in it. That's right. Because that's the way that Paul prays. You can see that in verse 13 where he says, so that, in other words, there's a conclusion, there's a result, there's a purpose to the increase of our love and the abounding of our love for one another. The purpose of that is for God to establish us. Jump up to chapter 3, verse 2 of this chapter. There we are reminded that Timothy, his ministry in Thessalonica, the reason why Paul sent Timothy there was to do what? It was to strengthen them. You see the word there, strengthen? That word, sterizo, that Greek word is the same word that Paul is now using here, only here the, the verb is attributed to God. That God is the one who will strengthen us. Or, as it's translated here, He is the one that will establish your heart. So strengthen, confirm, establish, something like that. And it tells us that although Timothy did this pastorally, he did this practically, God is going to do this definitively for us at the coming of of Christ. There's a definitive reality that's being spoken about here, brothers and sisters. And this is what Paul is this is what he's praying about. He's praying really heavenly minded, eternally minded. His whole prayer was not, "Oh Lord, give this person relief from this disease so that they can feel better." No, 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 that's not high enough. You didn't go far enough in the prayer. <laughs> you didn't go far enough cuz you didn't get to heaven with the prayer. (laughs) 
Lloyd-Jones says, it's not that we don't preach about practical matters in the church. We do preach about practical matters. And he says, we take them up in our, in our preaching, but we take them all the way up. And he says, and we lay them bare before the throne of God as to their Godwardness or their godlessness. That's what we do when we talk about practical things like prayer. In the words of the Valley of Vision, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul launched out into the eternal world through prayer. Beautiful, beautiful. He was caught up into the heavenly realms and there he sees our lives before God. That's all that matters. Do you know that? All that matters is how do you appear before God? That's the central concern of the Christian faith. How do I appear before God? Will I be pleasing to Him? And so Paul is saying something very radical here. What he's saying is that on a practical level, in your life right now, today, on planet Earth, what year is this? 2018? That's right. I always forget the year. And this year, this time, don't ask me what month it is. <laughs> but it's today, okay, right now. Where's your love? Where are the Christian graces in your life? Because I'm telling you, what Paul is saying here, and this is very powerful, what Paul is actually saying here is that indicative of what's going on now in your life, some sort of correspondence, some sort of correlation exists between what will happen in eternity with you. And don't, don't go to the connection of... I knew if I mentioned this, I'm like, man, this is, this is going to be really controversial. Because it almost sounds like what I'm saying is you need to earn your salvation. Absolutely not. Brothers and sisters, this is the logic of perseverance. It's the logic of perseverance. What it's saying is that your life better reflect now what will be revealed in the eschaton. Remarkable, right? Absolutely remarkable. And he prays for two things that he prays for, their, for um, the, the, the church before God. He prays for holiness in the heart, number one. And number two, holiness in the end or holiness in the eschaton. Look at what he says if you go back to Thessalonians. He says, And he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father. So the very first thing he prays for is for the establishment, the confirmation, the strengthening of our hearts in a definitive fashion. He's, in essence, praying that God will bring us all the way home. Really remarkable. The first thing is that he prays for holiness in the heart, which is no different than praying for holiness in the truth. If we have no holiness in the heart, then we have no holiness in truth. This is the way it works, and every single one of us is aware of it. We may have holiness in appearance, we may have holiness in our deeds. It may appear that we have holiness in our deeds. We, we may have the knowledge of holiness. We may have the profession of holiness. Judas did. Judas probably did miracles. I mean, that's how much of an illusion holiness can be on the surface. But at the end, he was false. Of course, we know that he was of the evil one. But if we do not have genuine holiness in the inner man, all we have is the external shell of hypocrisy and deception. That is why the Bible tells us to love in truth. 3 John verse 1. He tells us to walk in truth. 3 John verse 3. Paul speaks about preaching in truth, speaking in truth. Jesus says in John 4 verse 24, worship in truth. And the list goes on and on 
and on. In other words, God, like he told the psalmist, or like, excuse me, like the psalmist said in Psalm 51, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. He is the God of truth, the God of holiness. Matter of fact, I'm studying uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah right now, preparing to preach Isaiah probably in six months from now. Yeah, I'm already preparing. But anyway, aside from that, fascinating book. I, I can't get enough of it. And I learned that, the, that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, that his favorite designation for God throughout the whole book of Isaiah is the Holy One of Israel. It is because holiness is God's essential nature. It's what He is. I don't want to say above all else because we believe in the simplicity of God. What is the simplicity of God? I can't just throw that out there, I guess, without defining it. But the simplicity of God just basically means that God is not comprised of components or parts. It's not like he has a little of this, little of that, little of this, little of that, and you put it, stick it all together, and now you get God. No, uh, uh, theologically, divine simplicity just basically stresses the idea that God is who he is all at once at the same time in every way. Uh, there's no way we can compartmentalize God in that way. And, God, and, and Paul here is praying that they would be prepared to meet the source of holiness itself, the Holy One of Israel. The last point is that they would be prepared or they, that they would have holiness not just in the heart, but they would have holiness in the eschaton, in the end. He says that. He says that he will establish their hearts blameless and holy before our God and Father. And then this final uh, a relative clause here, he says, at the com- or prepositional clause, he says, at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Remarkable. Remarkable. Paul, I tell you what, he lived in light of the eschaton. He lived in light of the second coming. And don't grow weary on this. Brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in your eschatological worldview. Have you grown weary yet? Have you lost sight? Have you stopped talking about the second coming? Because, you know, you've adopted all millennialism now or whatever your problem is. (laughs) That's not a problem, by the way. (laughs) Dispensationalists would say, yeah, go get them. Whatever our reason, we often lose sight of our eschatological worldview, don't we? And we sort of minimize the reality of the impending reality of the second coming. And you know what we become? We become Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, where does it say? It says somewhere in there. I guess I'll turn there so I don't botch it. Second Peter chapter 3, I think it's verse 10 and 11, where Peter says, Verse 10, everything is going to burn. I went to a concession once. I was at a Christian rock concert a long time ago when I was young. And they had a Christian concession stand, and it was all this green power stuff, you know, this save the planet, you know. And I was very immature then, so I don't feel bad in confessing this, but I told the person, oh, no, thank you. I don't put a whole lot of stock in a world God's going to blow up one day. I said that tongue-in-cheek, but the reality is, is that Second Peter says it explicitly. One day the elements themselves will melt away with fervent heat. The cosmos will give way to a new heavens and a new earth. This is not our permanent home. Talk about global warming all you want, Al Gore. It's going to burn, man. God is going to burn it up. Look at what he says. Um, 
just right before he states that, you look at verse 8. He says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow concerning His promise. As some, and that some is pejorative. In other words, it's negative. It's not good to be in that category, y'all. Some, you don't want to be that some. Some count as slowness. You know what they're saying? God's out to lunch. God must be on a, on a lunch break or something because he's not moving this thing along. And it may feel like that in our little lives, right? It may feel like, oh, how long, O oh Lord, as the psalmist declares, we finish our life with a sigh. And this life, just the drudgery of life just keeps going and going. But it is the Christian worldview explicitly that tells us the truth about the, our lives and the fact that our lives are not an endless succession of, of events. Our world is telic. We are going somewhere. We are headed toward a finale. And that finale is going to be the second coming of Jesus Christ where He unleashes His glory on planet earth and He destroys His enemies and He saves and rescues His people. Amen? That's our hope. That's what our hope consists of. And that's why He says, God is patient toward you, not, wish, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And I just I reiterate that only because I think we lose sight of the significance of the eschaton. But Paul is saying, in light of that eschatological reality, that, un, that inevitable reality of the second coming, may God confirm you as His children to walk in Him holy and blameless and in the truth. It's just remarkable. Let's turn to the end of Thessalonians in chapter 5. God is going to do this. Don't think this is something you will do. No, uh, uh, glorification, like regeneration, is a monergistic act of God. What does monergistic mean? It means that God alone is going to accomplish it. Because we can't. We, We can't give ourselves glorification. I wish I could. I would have did it a long time ago. The Lord knows my body needs it. (laughs) Can I get an amen? If we could give ourselves glorification, we would have done it a long time ago. But the reality is, is there's only one that can actually glorify us, and that's God. And that's why Paul prays again. He prays again. Look at chapter 5, verse 23. He says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved completely without blame. Sound, sound familiar? Without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He also is faithful, in other words, to bring it to pass. Praise God. If you're condemned because of everything we've talked about today, the standard that we're talking about, the standard of righteousness, of holiness, of sanctification, of growth, of love, maybe you don't see yourself as a very loving person. I understand. 
But with that lack of love, don't let that lack of, of love produce in you condemnation. Let it produce in you a hunger and a contrition to grow and to become more like Him so that in the end, God will confirm you in holiness and give you the glorification that you cannot give to yourself. Oh, God. Let's pray. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord. It's so easy when we talk about what we lack to get overwhelmed, to feel as if it's hopeless because we don't have what we lack right now. When we look at how immature we're still, we still are, 